You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Jesus, I just thank you for your word today. I just thank you that you are, uh, you are present, that you, Holy Spirit, are leading this conversation. I just thank you that um, you have brought us all here today. And I just ask that it would be of your word and of your gospel that speaks through me and not my own ambition. Amen. On uh, December 8th, 19... Do I need to move, Matt? Okay. Okay. On December 8th, 1991... The Belazit Accords were the formal agreement that declared that the USSR had effectively ceased to exist and further established the Commonwealth of Independent States in its place as its successor entity. The documentation was signed in Belarus on the 8th of December by leaders of three of the four republics which had signed the original treaty of the state in 1922. Those who signed the documents were of the following. The late Russian president... Yeltsin, Ukrainian President Lenin, I'm going to butcher this name because I cannot read well, the Belarusian Parliament Chairman Stanzaliv. The documents guaranteed independence of the three nations from one another, disregarding past obligations of subjection to power. A promise that was made that day were that these nations would be subject to no other than themselves, and that these three are independent of the previous Soviet nation. Fast forward to today, nearly 30 years later, and current President Vladimir Putin has claimed ownership over the, quote, land taken away from our country in regards to Ukraine. What was a promise of peace and independence has been uprooted and tossed and replaced by hunger, anger, power, and greed. We live in a world of covenant, of promises, of oaths, of agreements. However, as humanity has it, as history shows, we dissolve those, we mute those, we disregard them for our own benefit. But where humanity fails to uphold its promises, God fulfills. Amen? Oh, come on. God fulfills his promises. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 15. We're going to be covering the entire chapter today. Um, I am going to just go verse by verse because reading the whole chapter would eat up probably five to ten minutes. So, Genesis 15. Um, The whole chapter is actually parsed into two different scenes. So it's five individual notes with a final epilogue put in. So verse 1 and verse 7 are the promises or declarations of Yahweh. Verses 2 and 3 and verse 8 are Abraham's complaints or asks. Verses 4 and verse 9 is Yahweh's response to those complaints. Verses 5, 16, and 17 are the public action. And verse 5, 13 to 16 are the conclusion. And this framework is important because it actually identifies the type of faith that Abraham was showing in this moment. He goes and he sways from having full commitment to, you can see in the later half of the chapter, almost being put into darkness, having to be reaffirmed. Each of us in this room have this absolute ability to know God as intimately as Abraham has. And this chapter shows us that not only can we approach God in the name of Jesus, but that he actually desires our approach. He desires to know us intimately, individually. 
And I think that one of the greatest woes of, uh, of the church today is that we have almost intellectually and abstractly put God into a box instead of actually knowing him as a person. You could have a master's or a doctorate in divinity, but if you have not personally known God, it's all for waste. You could have read the Bible a hundred times, but if you do not embed that word into your life, what is it good for? The first verse says this. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and said, Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. And if you've been tracking with the last uh, couple weeks, um, we're found after the events of Caldelamore. Probably not saying it right, but I'm just going to go with that. And his defeat and Abraham's commitment to not take a single possession for himself, but to provide what he did for his army. And the Lord in this verse is coming out with a declaration with three promises to Abraham, saying that he is the salvation, that he is the protector, and that he is the reward of the people of Israel. And what's interesting about this initial placement that is actually kind of odd in placement, because Abraham had just won over the dominion, domineering king of the land. He hadn't taken anything for himself. He should be in right standing with God. So for God to come out in this way with this very blunt but very um, domineering tone seems odd, but if you kind of think about how the land would have been placed, if one king had been moved, another would most likely take its place, causing almost like a power vacuum of that region. God is reminding Abraham that he is not the king, that Abraham is not the king, and that God is the ruler, the one that fills, and the salvation, protector, and the reward. And he is making his dominion known here. Verses 2 and 3 say this, But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The Lord has just established his dominion over Abraham's life, and now Abraham is responding to that with a first request. And what's interesting is that uh, in, my version, in my version, it says, O sovereign Lord, and some it says, Lord God. That is actually a very unique thing in the Bible. It actually indicates a covenant or a type of going to God in that way. The address is actually used in other instances with uh, Noah, with David, Solomon, parts of the prophets, all of whom form specific covenants with God himself. Abraham is asking God to step in and to change an outcome foreseen. He announces himself to Abraham, but Abraham is asking the fulfillment of that promise that was told to him during his call to follow him in chapter 12. To put it more plainly, it is as if God almost promised Abraham, I'm going to drive you to the airport, hotels, food, amenities, everything, and the return trip, and Abraham is on the side of the road waiting for God to pick him up, asking where he is. Abraham is not in doubt of God here, but is awaiting the promise asking for him to fulfill it and to give him an heir. Because though God had given Abraham all the possessions that he needed, it was loomed by the fact that Abraham simply had nobody to pass it on to, except for a slave that he trusted within his body. Verses 4 to 6 says this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if you indeed can count them. 
Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. These verses are the climax of this chapter. As the narrative meeting point between God and Abraham is cemented in an everlasting covenant. As Aaron spoke of in chapter 12, the the chapter is more of the calling of Abraham, or the put forth of Abraham for him to go out. And this is the covenant that is put forward. As soon as Abraham releases his burdens, I love that God instantaneously comes back and be like, okay, let me bring you out of your space. Let me bring you to mine. He turns him up to the stars to look. And God said in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, that I will make you a great nation. I think that's important because in this verse, he identifies a sort of a trusted slave, or in some versions it says servant, that Abraham would have appointed. But in chapter 12, God said, I will make you a great nation. You will be the first of this great nation. Not this um, adopted son of an indirect lineage. Then the Lord took Abraham outside to look up and question him further about his request. Abraham is being shown that not only will God provide for him in his immediate need, but will provide for him in the unforeseen one as well far beyond what Abraham would have known. Because this notion for our faith means that when we question God, he answers. But not only that, he also is answering the questions that we have down the road, 20, 30 years down the road. God has seen those questions, and he is ready to put them forward and answer them. Because notice how Abraham didn't actually go to God and say, where's my nation? Where's my millions and millions of people that are going to come from me? Where are they? He was simply asking God for a son. And God is giving him an everlasting promise of a nation that will be the children of God. And from here, Abraham is subject to God. Being allowed to be put forward to him only, submitting only to him. In one of my favorite books, Celebrating Discipline, uh, Richard Foster actually expounds upon this in a chapter. That's called the discipline of submission in our walk with Jesus. And in it, he describes that no matter what, we are submitting to something in this world, if not Jesus. People claim that by not following Jesus, I actually have freedom in my life. Really? Or are you just submitting to something else? Are you submitting to a lesser thing that actually has an end? Christ has no end. Amen? He's ever-living. He's everlasting. He's always with us. People replace Christ with things that are lesser all the time. And if not Jesus, the lifestyles we submit to will ask for little and give a lot in return in the beginning, but will later ask for a lot and give little in return. Jesus asks for little, yet gives so much, constantly. But this is the case for most idols, addictions, and patterns that do not align with the gospel. And if you are in this room and you call yourself a disciple of Jesus or someone that follows him, what kind of faith do you have towards? Is it surface level? Is it, is it only there when you're in a time of need or crunch? Is it slightly embedded? You know, you've grown up in your church your entire life and you don't know any other way or pattern. Or is it living? Is it constant? Is it disregard of your emotion that day and is it fully embedded in the gospel constantly to love, to know, and to understand God more. 
Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness. Not because he believed in God, but because he was believing in God. It was an ongoing action. He was meeting God at the very words spoken to him, and he believed them. He was no longer fixated on the past call, but he was fixated on God in the present. He was no longer fixated on the past calling, but he was fixated on the covenant. Waiting on the Lord entirely. Then we go to verse 7 to 21. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought him all of these two, cut them into two, and ranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut. The birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not of their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go in your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the four generations, you will, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. There are several nuances in these uh, 14 verses here. Um, For example, the three-year-old cow, the goat, and the ram all point to the nation's enslavement under Egypt, representing three generations of toil and oppression. While the nuances are important, the greater point of this passage is that Abraham is receiving his covenant from God. And that is almost being solidified. And we're actually able to identify this as a covenant ceremony by what it's not. This was not a sacrifice. There was no altar, no offering, no animals um, offered up to God, no ritual of the meat, blood, or anything. This is not a divination or something to see forward because, again, the meat wasn't examined. Nothing was done to it. It was left alone. And finally, we know that the animals were not used for incantation because Abraham was asleep. This action was initiated and carried out by God alone. What this means is that we are left with only a few options, and given this context, is the covenant ceremony of Abraham, or the everlasting promise. And what's remarkable about this uh, occurrence with the animals, the fire pot and the torch, is actually pretty unique. I'm just going to run out for like five minutes. Um, I'm just going to give some context for what those are, and then we'll close together. So the way the animals were arranged, with the mention of the torch and the fire pot, are all elements of purification used by various religions at the time. So the animals' arrangements, from the cow to the bird, would have identified most with uh, Shemesh and Kisu, 
The fire pot and the torches would have been most identified with Giru and Gibal, who were uh, sun or fire deities. And based on the region Abraham is in, he would have known these religions or deities well. He, would have underst- he wouldn't have uh, worshipped them, but he would have known who they were. Um, in fact, this uh, narrative is one of the only accounts where uh, this actually occurs, where the animals are split and the fire, torch, and pot are actually dragged through it in that way. But also, uh, along with that, these ceremonies would have been actually performed by people. So the animals being individual and the fire torches being individual, they weren't actually um, done by a deity. They were done by people giving themselves up as a sacrifice. And this verse is unique in that way, whereas all Abraham did was he brought the animals to God. And the whole passage, God is doing the ceremony. So you may be asking this point, like, why does that matter at all? Right? What's the point of all this? Well, the ceremony is pointing to the Israelites and showing to us as well that God is unique and above all other idols, possessions, and things in our life that may take our place in Him. Meaning God is dominant over the crutches that we have, over the things we put our time to, that He is worth it more than those. He's not of them in any way. He's unique to His own attributes. And He is far greater than the things we have. This was the Abrahamic covenant that the people of Israel would base their faith on. But in the Bible, there are actually several covenants. There's the Abrahamic, there's Mosaic, Davidic, even the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, of toil being on earth. This story and covenant today is not about Abraham, though. It's not about you and me. But it's about Jesus. Because the fact is, is that this covenant was broken by us, by people. And the only one who could fulfill the covenant was Christ. God, in giving his own son, fulfilled the covenant of Abraham. God pledged himself as a savior over the new foundation of the nation. But that covenant is ultimately accomplished in Christ. Every day, covenants are broken by people, by governments, companies, you name it. Any one of us. And the only way we are going to live in a peace and understanding that we can continue to go forward is by knowing that our covenant is not found in the world. All right? Our covenant is found in Christ. Because he has delivered time and time again. He has saved, I would pray, each of us in this room. And he has brought us into a place that is so far better. In a place that relies not on how we're feeling not on what's happening in the world. Because God is constant. And with God, our faith can be constant. Our faith can be everlasting. As Christ gave his life for us. So I think the big takeaway today is, how do you hold yourself to that covenant? Do you rely on the world too much? Do you rely on your possessions too much? Do you rely on the news? You know, I, I genuinely am not on social media just because it discourages me. But this week has been a busy week. It's hard to ignore. You know, I have friends from work who they're going over. How do you wrestle with that? When they know their families are in turmoil, I know they're not Christian, 
how are they going over to sacrifice themselves in that way? I think each of us here, we, we have this ability to look past of what is the event of the world and we're able to be just solidly founded in Christ alone. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for this word. I thank you that you have brought it to us today. I just ask that um, I ask that your covenant be embodied in us, your covenant of grace found in Jesus, that we, we do not live, we do not act as if it's not there. I pray that we would not be distracted by what is around us, by uh, what is happening in the world, but God, that our focus would be airtight and, and dead set on you. That we would not want anything else other than you, that we would not desire anything else than you. And I just ask that you go with us and bring us to a new action.